Welcome to the podcast, Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture. I'm your host, Scott Ray, Dean of Faculty and Professor of Christian Ethics at Talbot School of Theology, Biola University. We're here today with Dr. Sam Gregg, who is the Director of Research for the Acton Institute uh, in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Uh, he was born and raised in Australia, uh, educated at the University of Melbourne, and a, doct- a, doctor, a DPhil, Doctor of Philosophy from the University of Oxford right. in the UK, and has lived in the United States here since 2001. Mm-hmm. So maybe not exactly a total citizen of the world, but pretty, <laughs> but pretty close. I feel in, like in, a citizen of the Anglo world. In the Anglo world, that's... <laughs> Yeah, he's all, he's the author of several books. Uh, in fact, if we were to list them, it would take way too much time here. But there are two that I want to point out. That might be of particular interest to our listeners. The two that I found the most helpful of your books are your book uh, entitled "Becoming Europe," mm-hmm. uh, which is a, a fascinating work, and subtitled "Economic Decline, Culture, and How America Can Avoid a European Future." But the one that, in my view, is the most helpful of all your books. Is, is your book on banking called For God and Profit, ah. uh, how banking and finance can serve the common good. I may have a question or two about that sure. as we go along. Sam is an expert on the global economy, both the ethics and the economics of the global economy, the, as I like to put it, the good, bad, and the ugly of the global economy. So what I'd like to do is start with that. Let's be clear right at the, right at the beginning. What, is, what do you mean by globalization? <clears throat> What's the definition of that? Well, uh, typically when people talk about globalization, they usually mean today, they usually mean the habits and institutions of the market economy. And my, my take on it is slightly different. Globalization clearly today involves a universalization of certain habits, certain institutions, certain expectations that we associate with the market economy. But at a broader level, I think globalization is about the universalization of anything whether it's an idea, a habit, an institution, a way of proceeding, uh, a philosophy, a religion, anything that becomes something that people from all cultures, all backgrounds can in some way partake of and contribute to. So, for example, um, ideas, I think, are a good example of something that becomes globalized very quickly for better and for worse. Um, Christianity, for example, is a very good example of uh, an idea, beliefs, uh, a way of thinking about the world, certain claims about religious truth that really are global. No one would describe Christianity today as predominantly a Western European or European or even an Atlantic thing. It's a global religion. It's really, truly universal. So when I talk about globalization, I always stress At the moment, in our present point in history, it manifests itself economically. Global integration, uh, global markets, global financial markets, people trading uh, across barriers of nation, etc. That's how it manifests itself today. But I think there are many ways and different things have universalized themselves. And that's what I think globalization is ultimately about. And it can be for better. And it can be for worse. Okay, we'll get into the for better, for worse here in just a minute. But let's let's just be clear about this: the the main elements of globalization in today's mm-hmm. economy are what? Well, I think first of all, free trade, the removal and sometimes breaking down of barriers to people, individuals, and companies within particular nations trading relatively freely with people living in 
other nations. Now, that's, that's, trade is not a new thing in human history. Trade is uh, something that's been going on from the very beginning of time. But what's particularly interesting is that since, the I guess, the early 1980s, we have seen concerted efforts by governments from around the world, or both the left and the right, by the way, to try and reduce trade barriers between countries. So removing things like tariffs or removing things like subsidies. So that's one manifestation. Another manifestation of it economically in our world today, I think, is the internationalization of financial markets. Um, once upon a time, up until relative, relatively recently, financial markets tended to be, they, they were in one sense global, but they were not as integrated as they are today. Technologies had a lot to do with that. People trading in a place like, I don't know, Beijing can trade in real time on Wall Street. People on Wall Street can trade in real time in the London Stock Exchange, etc. So that and that that sort of financial integration, I think, is very, very important when it comes to understanding the speeding up of globalization and also the rapid movement of capital around the world. It's just a lot faster now. That can have some good effects. People can move very quickly to invest capital where they think there's going to be um, a significant profit. But it can also produce a herd mentality whereby people think, oh, because Warren Buffett's do it, doing it, yeah. we should all do it. So, so runs on the bank can take place in a matter of, course, of seconds. Of course, whereas before it would have taken you know, the news to get across from America to Europe a little longer. Mm -hmm. Now, you, you maintain that our, our current global economy is not actually the first one. Correct. Uh, when was the first one? Uh, and you, you also maintain that that first one actually did come to an end. It did. It did. Uh, so t tell us about that first one and how did, how did it, what was it like and how did it happen that it came to an end? <clears throat> well, uh, I use this as an example when I often talk about globalization to say that there's nothing inevitable or deterministic about globalization. Different forms of globalization can come to an end, sometimes very quickly, before we even know it. And the 19th century um, global economy is a good example of that. This emerged following the Napoleonic Wars, where <clears throat> the works of Adam Smith started to become more widely read uh, among educated North Americans and Europeans. And this produced an intellectual impetus on the part of governments, interestingly, to more or less remove tra trade barriers. In many cases, just unilaterally, just saying, we will trade with anyone. In other cases, it involved treaties whereby different countries would agree to progressively lower t trade barriers between um, the, the participants in a particular treaty. So what you see all through the 19th century is <clears throat> a rapid diminution of protectionist policies, the removal of subsidies, the removal of legal protections or, or what some people would call privileges for particular occupational groups, which we used to call guilds, etc. And this produced... Um, uh, an economy which in many respects was more, more integrated than it is today. Hmm. We today, compare, I mean, we think of ourselves as living in a relatively integrated global economy, and that's true. But in many respects, the type of global economy that existed in the 19th century was far more integrated, far more free trade, and far less protectionist than the one we live in today. Why did this come to an end? came to an end because of the thing called the Second World War, uh, the First World War. First World War. So in 1914, um, when the world went to war, that obviously meant that suddenly people weren't trading freely across natural, national boundaries as they had been before. 
Interestingly, two years before that, <clears throat> um, uh, a philosopher named Norman Angel, Angel, I think his name was, wrote a book saying, so 1912 saying, the world is so economically integrated that we will never have a global war ever again. And two years later, that's exactly what happened. And from then on, after the, second, the First World War, countries moved very directly in the, towards policies of protectionism, tariffs, subsidies. So between 1914 and 1945, you no longer had a, an integrated global economy. You had a highly protectionist, highly subsidized economy existing pretty much everywhere throughout the world. Now, Sam, I hear people saying that very same thing today. Right. That, right. It, that we have such a, an integrated global economy that it's just simply too costly. Mm-hmm. It's too costly for business, right. for companies to go to war. For example, people have said this explains why there's been relative peace between India and Pakistan for mm-hmm. so many years, because it would be much too costly for business. It, I mean, is that, is, that, is that true? Is that largely what you <clears throat> think is responsible for keeping that peace? I have a number of thoughts about that. I'm, I'm a, uh, as a Christian, of course, I'm, I'm not a t- determinist. I don't believe anything is sort of inevitable in terms of mm-hmm. if this happens, then, then it's impossible for war to break out. Human beings are weak. Human beings are sinful. I, I really do believe that we shouldn't rule out the possibility that people, nations, can, will occasionally go to war. Uh, now, it's true, I think, that when you have economic integration between countries, it creates significant incentives not to go to war. That's a good way. That's a good way to put it. That's one way. On the other hand, people like Adam Smith, who of course is really who made the first profound case, systematic intellectual case for free trade, he pointed out that when countries engage in free trade, they become wealthier, they become stronger, they can have bigger militaries if they want to. Mm -hmm. And he, for example, was not at all convinced that the growing wealth that would come through free trade would necessarily lead to greater peace. He even said things like, look, it means that wealthy countries who grow even wealthier, lots and lots of countries will be able to maintain, quote unquote, armies and fleets at long distances away from themselves. Uh, and it's also the case that when countries become very wealthy, they can afford to go to war for longer periods than they otherwise would have in the past. So <clears throat> while I'm inclined to think that economic integration does create the type of uh, dynamics that you described, I wouldn't assume that this rules out any possibility of war. In fact, it sometimes the, the wealth that is accrued through free trade gives countries resources than they may have more resources than they perhaps otherwise might have had to spend on bu- building big, strong armies and navies. And Adam Smith foresaw that. Oh, yes, he said this. He's very clear about this. He wasn't a person who said universal peace through free trade. He said, look, it will reduce tensions to a certain extent, but some countries may become so wealthy that they decide, you know, we can afford to go to war for a couple of years. So yeah, so maybe it's not that costly. Right, <clears throat> right. Now, today, you look at Brexit, mm-hmm. um, you look at a lot, a, lot of the, a lot of the discontent that got Donald Trump elected today, right. Uh, I think it's pretty clear that not everybody's a big fan of globalization. Correct. Uh, so what would you say are some of the, the reasons mm-hmm. why people are not fans of globalization? And maybe there, I suspect there might be some myths and misunderstandings in there that are part of that too. 
I think that's right. Um, you know, free trade is a bit of a counterintuitive argument, right? People don't. That people think, how do I become wealthy by just simply trading with another person? Or they think things like, surely we should just um, just trade with people we know within our own countries. So there, there are some misperceptions, and and economics, I often say to people, is um, it's not the easiest discipline in the world to get your mind around. I mean, because it requires you to think a little counterintuitively about a lot of things. So that's one thing. A second reason, I think, is that free marketers like me have not been very good at dealing with the fact that not everyone wins from the process of free trade, that there are people in the short term and medium term for whom things don't necessarily work out so well. If you're a, in a particular industry and you open, the country is opened up to free trade and suddenly the country is working out what's, a, what's its comparative advantage and what's not, Suddenly, it may be that parts of particular parts of manufacturing in the United States are no longer globally competitive, which means that some people are going to lose their jobs. And maybe they're 50 years old or 55 years old or 60 years old, and they can't easily just go off and, I don't know, start a startup in California. It's just not that simple. So that's one thing. There are casualties. There are casualties from globalization. That's not a reason to, I think, to stop the process. I happen to think that overall, in the long term, it's most beneficial for, for a vast majority of people. But we shouldn't, we, too many people have ignored the fact that there are casualties. Too many free traders, free marketers like myself have been too quick to just say, well, this will all work itself out in the long term. Uh, thirdly, I think it's, it's very true that when you open yourself up to global markets, it means disruption. It means a certain less degree of security, right? Because you're having to think that you can't just assume that the government is going to subsidize this industry anymore or there's going to be protective tariffs to protect your particular crop against others. And not everyone deals with disruption and uncertainty the same way. Some people are some people exult in it. Some people love it. They 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 think this is great. I can be innovative. It's keeping me on my toes. Other people, however, they value security more. And I'm not making a value judgment about either of these things. I think some people are just built to either be sort of more liberty inclined or more concerned about security. Most of us are somewhere in between. But some people really value security, particularly if they've come from uh, backgrounds that have been particularly poor or they've had experiences of what economic insecurity is like. I mean, I understand, for example, why many Europeans are a little nervous about uh, freedom in general because they've had a pretty miserable 20th century. And so you can understand why they would be yearning more for security rather than liberty. Again, I don't think that's an argument against increasing economic integration. But I do think these are examples of why many people are finding the process of globalization stressful, disruptive. It changes the way, in many cases, entire towns have lived lives for generations. And the process of transitioning to new forms of economic life is not easy. Again, it's not an argument against economic integration, but I think we need to think about these things and how to address these types of problems if one wants to see this economic integration continue. And I think a lot of people have basically assumed that it would just take care of itself. Well, clearly, it's not. It's not happening. It's not happening. So, as a Christian, mm -hmm. as you look at the globalization of markets through a distinctly Christian worldview, mm -hmm. 
how do you how do you assess the the good, bad, and the ugly <laughs> from a dis, distinctly right. Christian view of the world? Right. Well, I think that Christianity brings a, a lot of different things to this, this discussion. One thing which I often talk about is that Christianity has a strong universalistic dimension. Remember, we talked about globalization mm-hmm. at the beginning of having this universalistic yeah. dimension. Globalization of the gospel. Right, exactly. I mean, Christianity is not a let's stay at home and, and sit in our, in our hotel room and just pretend the world's going on. No, we're supposed to go out and evangelize. And that, that evangelization doesn't stop at the borders of ancient Israel, doesn't stop at the borders of Europe, it doesn't stop at the borders of North America. It's global. So Christianity in that sense as a universal outlook. And so, and, and the truths that it proclaims about there is one God, Jesus Christ is Savior, uh, that humans are designed in a particular way, these are universal messages. They're not just messages that only Europeans can understand or Westerners. It's anyone can literally understand these sorts of things. So there is this very strong universal dimension to Christianity. On the other hand, Christianity also is very, has tended to be, I think, generally speaking, relatively respectful of the cultures, the different cultures and different societies in which it's entered. Paul gives us a good example of this, right? When he, He's very good at adapting his message, the same message, mm-hmm. to different audiences. When he talks to a group of, uh, of Jews in the synagogue, his language is very different from when he talks to the philosophers in Athens. So Christianity is, is, has this very strong emphasis upon being respectful of the particular. Christianity also says that patriotism is a good thing. Love of country is a good thing. Now, all those things play into many of our contemporary debates about economic globalization, about nationalism, about how we we think about the global and the national at the same time. Uh, so from that standpoint, we can say a number of things. One, uh, to the extent that globalization makes us more and more aware that we're all human, that there are no subhumans, there are no superhumans, there are just humans, that's something that Christianity has emphasized from the very beginning. That's one thing. The second thing is that Christians are obviously supposed to be concerned about our brother and sister in poverty. And I don't think it's... It, it, well, I, I think it's very clear that economic globalization has reduced poverty significantly across the globe. Now, it's uneven. I think most of the economic uh, poverty reduction has occurred in East Asia and China. Not much has happened in Africa. But is the world less poor overall as a consequence of globalization? Yes. Certainly, that's true. That's certainly true. There are even many people who would describe themselves as somewhat politically on the left who who would freely acknowledge who would freely acknowledge this. So to the extent that um, uh, Christianity uh, emphasizes the need to, to deal with this problem of poverty, then obviously I think globalization, empirically speaking, it does reduce poverty, so that's a good thing. Uh, on the other hand, I think Christianity would also remind us that we can't lose sight of the economic well-being of those who are members of our own nations. A good example would be to say something like, well, you know, people are getting out of poverty in places like India and China, but is this at the expense of people living in, I don't know, West Virginia or somewhere like that? Um, And Christianity presumably will be telling us that we can't forget those people who are actually sort of physically close to us, who are members of our own nation, who are members of our own country. We can't just forget about 
those particular individuals as this process goes on. So Christians would be, I think a Christian would say, there are people who are casualties of globalization as well, and we need to be attentive to their needs and help, helping them to make transitions to the, the, the type of economic arrangements which will enable them not to become wards of the state, not to become fall into the trap of welfare dependency, etc. <clears throat> I also think that another thing that Christianity brings to the table is this, it, it has the same view, human nature is the same, that there's no sort of, that culture is important, culture makes out particular differences between people, but Christianity emphasizes that we are Mankind is one. Mankind is one. This is what many of the missionaries used to talk about. And to that extent, Christianity can help us not fall into the trap of what I would call a type of narrow-minded xenophobia, where we become afraid of the stranger, we become afraid of the refugee, we become afraid of the economic migrant. But it would also say that those people who migrate to a new country or who are refugees, they need to respect the laws of the country that has received them. Christianity has always uh, paid a lot of attention to honouring the government. It's not we, Christians don't view government as a sort of inherently negative institution. It's, Paul talks about this. Paul talks as, tells us to honour the emperor. He doesn't say worship the emperor. That's right. <laughs> he says honour the emperor. So government is a legitimate authority. And when it comes to many of the these questions that are flowing out of globalisation today, um, People moving into a new country or migrating to a new country, they need to understand that they need to obey the laws of the country that they're going into. And Christianity would say, yes, that's exactly right. So is Christianity pro-globalization, anti-globalization? I don't think it's either. I think it's a, it brings a set of principles which Christians can use to assess, as you said, the good, the bad, and the ugly of globalization to ask what's in conformity with the gospel, what's not. What's, what accords with what reason tells us and what doesn't accord with what reason tells us. Now, let me take this just a, a little bit step further. Mm -hmm. uh, we hear It's very common to hear politicians, pundits, say that we have a moral obligation to keep American jobs in America. Right. How, how do you evaluate that from a Christian worldview? Well... <clears throat> I don't think jobs come with a sort of national label attached to them. Uh, what Christianity says about something like jobs is that work is something that humans are designed to do. We're not created to be passive. And that's very clear from the very verse, mm -hmm. uh, verses of, of the scriptures, right? Even before the fall. Before the fall, yes. humans are working. We're called to till the earth. And <clears throat> whether that's in a particular country, I think, is sort of... Not really the point. It's, that's sort of an incidental thing. The, where it happens is not so important. What matters is that human beings are working. The second thing, I think, is that what you just described reflects a type of um, static view of things. Um, the patterns of employment are changing all the time in every country, regardless of how open they are or not to trade. Jobs that existed... 20 years ago, I don't know, the typewriter salesman mm -hmm. doesn't exist anymore. Horse and buggy industry doesn't exist anymore. Because fax, fax machines. Fax machines. I had this reflection the other day. Someone asked me for a fax number, and I thought, I don't think I've ever used a, haven't used a fax for maybe 10 years. In other words, in a creative economy, and Christianity talks a great deal about human creativity, there's going to be churn. There's going to be disruption. You can't assume that 
a job in a particular business, in a particular state, in a particular country is going to be there tomorrow, let alone in 5, 10, 20 years' time. What matters, I think, is whether any society is able to design an economy in such a way that it provides bountiful, plentiful, and ongoing employment for people. It's not so much important whether a particular good job is is um, outsourced to Mexico. What matters in the case of the United States is that there is more and more opportunity for work growing. It shouldn't, we shouldn't be thinking about this in terms of one job is a static thing and it's being shifted off, offshore. It might be, but maybe that also creates space for people to find their comparative advantage to build a new business and create new jobs that happen to be based in America. That's a great point. Um, now, one of the things that's, I think, most has been most disruptive here, both in the U.S. and but particularly in Europe, mm. as a result of the global movement of, oh, right. of right. jobs is, and, and, people. and capital. But it is, is the movement of people. Right. Um, yeah, you, you argue that there's a consistent pattern to migration, um, but this produces huge challenges. Absolutely. So help us understand that. Well, I think um, <clears throat> we now live in a world in which the movement is underway. There are lots and lots of people moving. Some of them are refugees. Uh, I'm thinking, for example, Christian refugees from the Middle East. Mm -hmm. the, the persecution of Christians there is terrible and people are getting up and leaving. There's a lot of Arab Christians living in the United States for a reason. They've fled from persecution. <clears throat> um, but most migration that occurs today is what's called economic migration. So these are not people who are refugees. These are not people who are being persecuted. These are not people who are suffering because of their faith or their ethnic origin. They're leaving because there's little to no economic opportunity for them in their home country. So they're getting up from places in, say, Central America, in Africa, and they're moving to countries where they believe they can find work and develop a life of dignity, uh, perhaps perhaps build a family, send remittances back home, etc. This, this is going on everywhere. <clears throat> and uh, that's the majority form of, of migration today. It's economic migration. But this does produce a lot of challenges because many people are moving from countries where there's one predominant culture and they're entering into a country where the culture is utterly different. Completely foreign. Completely different. And we're also seeing uh, um, situations where the people, the countries who are losing their young people, who, so the young people are leaving, that creates big challenges for those countries because they're losing a lot of what economists would call human capital. They're also losing people who are willing to take risks. And that's really, people who are willing to take risks is uh, very important for economic development. So when we talk about migration, we often think of, well, the, the, the clear difficulties it, project, it, it creates for destination countries, mostly North America, Western Europe, etc. This clearly creates problems, but it also creates problems for the countries that are losing people as well. So that's one thing. <coughs> I think another dimension of this of this particular uh, particular migration changes that we see happening in the world today is that we have to ask ourselves why are people moving, and they're moving because they're seeking economic opportunity, and we know that economic opportunity tends to be associated with countries that have strong rule of law, strong private property rights, and a respect for economic freedom. So that's why people are wanting to go to the United States, Canada, Australia. 
They're not going to China. Even though China is experiencing a relatively high degree of economic prosperity for the moment, no one wants to go and live there. You don't find lots and lots of people from Africa getting up and saying, I want to go and live in China and I'm going to cross lots and lots of deserts to do that. They're going to other places. So what that tells us is that there are many people who are moving because of economic opportunity, and they see that in some of these countries which have these stable institutions. The flip side of that is there are some people who are moving to particular countries because they know, this may sound uncharitable, but they know they can access welfare relatively easily. And that's maybe one of the biggest differences that, that between the experience of migration in the United States today and that in Europe. It's very clear that a lot of people are going to Europe because they know that if they get into particular countries, they'll be able to access the welfare state. And that's not good. It's not good because then economic migrants become welfare migrants. Dependence. Dependency. And that's not good. It's not good for them. And we also know that we know this is true because we know that European governments are now changing laws to try and limit access to the welfare state because they know that this is not a long-term healthy uh, characteristic that they want to see develop in their societies. So I think when most people come to the United States to migrate, when they migrate here, typically they start off with one or two jobs and gradually start working their way up the economic ladder. In contrast, by contrast in Europe, many people who migrate to Europe now are not uh, getting jobs, they're on welfare. So the, the number of people who migrated to Germany in 2015, I believe it was, when Angela Merkel said, come on in, etc., etc. Something like, I read a statistic the other day that 90% of those people, mm. so this is four years later, do not have a job. Oh, ouch. This is not good. This is not a healthy situation. It's not good for the long-term um, uh, stability of Germany. It's not good to have uh, large numbers of people who already come from cultures that are very different from European cultures who are unemployed and, and presumably starting to get angry about that. Uh, and it's also not good when they don't assimilate. I mean, one of the geniuses of America, I think, is that everyone becomes an American. That doesn't mean that you reject your heritage. It just means that, no, this is my allegiance now, and I become part of the United States, and I adhere to the norms of this society. In Europe, that's not, has not happened. It's not happened. It's a very, very different situation. One, Sam, one last question mm -hmm. on this. What, what out there in the, the way globalization is going gives you hope and encouragement? Mm -hmm. uh, what, what, what are some of the good things that uh, we can look forward to in the years to come? Well, hopefully we'll continue to see re reductions in poverty. Hopefully we'll see reductions in poverty in those parts of the world where, where there has been less of that development. I'm thinking particularly of Africa. Uh, so that, I mean, economically speaking, I think the future looks relatively good for the majority of people. I don't want to downplay the negatives because we've talked about that and I think they're real, but I, we shouldn't lose sight of some of the economic positives. A second thing I think is that it, it does provide new opportunities for evangelization. It really does, because when countries start to open up themselves up to the world, it's an opportunity for Christian missionaries to go into these countries as well and to help spread the gospel. Another thing which I find interesting, maybe you've noticed this as well, is that even a place like communist China, which has had this sort of limited opening up, limited opening up to the world economically, it's interesting that it's precisely in these special economic zones that were opened up, somewhat opened up to the world in the 1980s, and which have become wealthier, and which people have gotten out of poverty, 
are also the areas where Christianity is growing. And my, I, I've tried to think, thought about that. Why is that the case? And the best I can come up with is when you give people some degree of economic freedom, you have to give them some freedom to think, to, to contemplate, to wonder about the world. And when people get out of back-grinding poverty, sometimes then they have the opportunity and time to be able to think about the bigger questions of life. It's really hard to do that if you can't, you're trying to survive day by day. But if you're living in a society where suddenly, okay, I don't have to worry about how I'm going to feed myself and my family tonight, suddenly I'm in a position where I can start to contemplate bigger questions. And maybe I even start to see things like my work and my creativity as part of a bigger design. So I, I think that's, yeah. that's a very hopeful sign that, that, because I often think that globalization is often seen as, well, it's a, a secularizing force, et cetera, et cetera. But I think when you look at countries that have opened themselves up to globalization in that way, certainly in developing countries, the opposite tends to be the case. The world is becoming, here's another, the world is, this globalized world we, have, we are living in is becoming more religious. Western Europe and parts of North America are the exception. They're not the rule. They're not the rule. If you look around the world, the world is becoming more religious. And I think that globalization has some indirect responsibility for that. That's a, it's a really interesting observation about the, the, that connection between poverty being alleviated mm-hmm. and having, you know, having the personal bandwidth now to, right. to entertain some of life's really most, most right. significant questions right. that give rise to the gospel. I right. think that's a, part, that's a part of what our listeners and what the church ought to, ha- ought to be attuned to and be praying for absolutely as as the global economy continues right. to expand. So, Sam, this has been incredibly insightful stuff. I so appreciate the the work that you've done, not only in in economics but in theology and philosophy. And it's it's just so it's so well integrated. And in how how you see the world through the lenses of a distinctly Christian worldview is very encouraging. So we're we're really grateful for you taking the time to reflect on some of these questions on the global economy. These are not easy questions. No, I often say that uh, if you're looking for simple answers, I'm not the person to speak to, and you're probably not the person to speak to either. <laughs> well, but I, but I I appreciate you being clear, mm-hmm. but also being nuanced and admitting that things are complex when they when they are. Right. Uh, and that the the global economy is on on balance been a lot of good things. But it's definitely a mixed thing, right? Exactly. And there's there are downsides too that we need that as the church, we need to be attentive to. Exactly. So much appreciated for you taking the time to be with us and for your insight on these what I think are some pretty difficult questions. Thank you, Scott. It's great to be with you, and maybe I'll come back someday. Well, we this certainly merits a follow up uh, to some of the other stuff that you've been sure. thinking about and writing on. This has been an episode of the podcast Think Biblically: Conversations on Faith and Culture. To learn more about us and today's guest, Dr. Sam Gregg, and to find more episodes, go to biola.edu forward slash thinkbiblically. That's biola.edu forward slash thinkbiblically. If you've enjoyed today's conversation, give us a rating on your podcast app, and please do share it with a friend. Thanks so much for listening, and remember, think biblically about everything.